Well, those of you who were here at the basketball game on Saturday night saw an absolutely unforgettable thing happen. Is Adam Dennis here this morning? Where is he? Where are you? Stand up. Would you, we just, this is unbelievable. But this young man won an $18,000 Bronco II by making five shots in a row. And I think on Wednesday there's going to be a presentation made by Galp and Ford. They said in all the years that they have been sponsoring such events of golf tournaments and basketball things, no one has ever won anything. In fact, there was a there was a fella here by the name of Bud Schaefer who is a recruiter for all of the uh, sports ambassador teams. He selects players to send all around the world in, in basketball evangelism. And he said to me, I can't believe a guy who can shoot like that isn't the star of your basketball team. So uh, I don't know what that means, Adam, but uh, anyway, <laughs> we congratulate you. And, uh, you know, we have sort of what we call class two miracles around here all the time. Um, <laughs> Class one miracles are raising the dead and things like that, but uh, <laughs> class two miracles making five straight shots and winning an $18,000 Bronco too. So we congratulate you, and uh, we all want to ride when you get it. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to remind you also that um, homecoming is Saturday night, and we're going to be playing Christian Heritage. So you'll want to be here at 7.30, and tomorrow baseball season begins with a doubleheader against Hawaii Pacific College. We've got to have our baseball team stand. If you're on the baseball team, stand up. Let's uh, give them our support. That's great. Okay. And that starts tomorrow, so we'll want to be out supporting our teams as we begin our baseball season as well as basketball. And our gals teams have some games this week. You'll want to be aware of those as well. Let's open our Bibles this morning again to Daniel chapter 9, our last look at Daniel 9. We started the discussion of this matter of prayer, and I really do just want to follow up on that. I, I don't intend for this to be particularly a sermon uh, to you, but just to share with you some of the great things in this chapter re relative to prayer. As I said to you, this is probably in the Old Testament as great a uh, section on prayer as there is any place. It takes us right into the heart of the great man of God by the name of Daniel who is known as a man of prayer. In fact, his tremendous commitment to prayer caused him to wind up in a den of lions. He is a man who had an uncompromising heart, and part of that uncompromising heart was devoted to prayer. We have seen him to be a man who was full of faith, a man who was bold, a man who was unselfish and humble, a man who resisted the world, a man who was holy, incorruptible, persistent, honest, trustworthy, all those good things. Daniel is a remarkable, remarkable man. Now, this man, so devoted to prayer, really gives us here in one of his prayers what I believe to be a marvelous pattern for prayer. And it isn't so much an uh, explicit teaching on prayer. That is, he's not telling us how to pray, but he is modeling for us the essence of what prayer really is. Now, remember, just briefly, we looked at three points as we began to look at this chapter. And first of all, we said true prayer is in response to the word. Daniel, in verse 2, is observing in the books. 
That is, he is reading Old Testament scripture, most notably reading in the scrolls from Jeremiah. And reading in Jeremiah, he reminds himself, because Jeremiah speaks of this, that God had designed the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem to last only 70 years. Remember that Daniel had been taken captive into Babylon, and that captivity was to be a 70-year captivity. And as Daniel is reading in the scripture of Jeremiah, he's reminded of the fact that the 70 years is almost up. And so his prayer rises out of his response to reading the Word of God. And I shared with you the fact that I've learned in my own life that the most meaningful times of prayer come in my study of God's Word. That prayer rises out of interaction with the Word of God. Prayer, in a very real sense, is communion. And as God talks to me through the Word, the response comes in responding back and communicating with Him in prayer. And that's the way it was with Daniel. His prayer life was spawned out of his devotion to study the Word of God. Prayer is not a, a, a one-dimensional capability. We cannot exist with a devoted and consistent and meaningful and effective prayer life unless it's balanced off by listening to God and being stimulated by Him through the matter of studying His Word. So prayer is generated by God's Word. Second point that we made is it is grounded in God's will. And he sees here that God has designed 70 years of captivity. That is to say, God has designed 70 years of chastening of Israel for their disobedience to him. And so in these 70 years coming to an end, Daniel recognizes that God is going to restore his people. Now, we said last time that might say to him, well, you don't need to pray because God already said how it's going to happen. But rather than that, rather than saying, well, God has everything under control and this 70 years is nearly over. It's all going to wrap up the way God said. God's going to take them back to the land and so forth. And just taking the, the sort of fatalistic view that says God's going to do it. I don't need to get involved. Daniel rather wants to identify with the will of God. And we tried to point out, and I'm just reviewing again, that prayer is lining us up with what we know God's designed to do. And that's a marvelous thing. It's like John saying, even so, come Lord Jesus, after giving us 21 chapters on the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's the spirit of the saint to line up with the will of God. We know God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so our hearts are drawn out to pray for the lost, not because God won't save, not because God will save, but because we want to be identified with what God designs to do. And so prayer lines up with the will of God. In fact, in a very real sense, prayer is the believer getting in line with the will of God. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What does it mean in my name? Consistent with my will and my purpose. Whatever you ask according to my will, I will do it. So we line up with God's will. So here is Daniel. In response to the word, he prays, and he prays in accord with the will of God. The third thing that we mentioned to you is prayer is not only generated by God's word and grounded in God's will, but it is characterized by fervency. And we noted in verse 3, I gave my attention to the Lord God. Literally in the Hebrew it says, I set my face. And there's a, there's a resoluteness to this. There's a deep and lasting commitment evidenced in the fact that he began to pray and offer supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This is persistence. This is intensity as he pours out his heart to God. 
He sets his face toward the Lord Adonai, his master, and he begins to pray, interceding on behalf of his people. He fasts, which stresses his humility and his intensity and his fervency. And he prays continuously, even in verse 20, when the answer comes, he is still praying. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then Gabriel came. In other words, he is praying persistently, even when God sends the answer, he's still praying. Fasting, as I mentioned, is linked to prayer because fasting is an indication of the intensity of the heart where there is a loss of appetite. True prayer, then, let's go over it just briefly, is generated by the Word of God, grounded in the will of God, characterized by fervency. Let's go to a fourth principle this morning. It is also centered in self-denial. It is centered in self-denial. And I want you to notice verse 4. Very important statement made by Daniel that shows this principle. I prayed to the Lord my God and... What's the next word? Confessed. Confessed. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Young people, I am convinced that nothing is more important in the life of a believer than the constant daily confession of sin. That's essential. That is absolutely dynamic in the alteration of your life and your conduct and your behavior and your attitudes. It, in fact, is a controlling factor. For example, if I fall on my knees before God and I confess that I have sinned against God in a certain area, the openness of that confession restrains me from doing that again, lest I mock God and mock my own prayers. If I don't say anything to God about what I'm doing that's wrong, that displeases Him, then there's a sense in which I escape the accountability of that. The constant confession of sin before God in honesty and integrity out of my own heart acts as a restrainer in my life. If I have evil thoughts and I pour my heart out to God and say, God, forgive me for those evil thoughts, I confess those things, I confess bitterness, I confess anger, I confess uh, the lust, I confess the pride, uh, whatever it is, and I, I specifically tell God what it is I'm confessing, that acts as a restraint on my life. You learn to confess your sins because it's right, and you learn to confess your sin because it's a spiritual means of grace that restrains you. If you are honest in confessing your sins to the Lord, you'll find it very difficult to go right out and indulge yourself in them again. And may I add a footnote to that? Most people do not confess the sins they want to keep doing. Because that's just too heavy a burden to bear to be a hypocrite as well as a sinner in whatever category you've chosen to sin. The confession of sin, I believe, is the rising of the true heart of a dedicated believer. Really, I guess I'd have to confess in my own mind that I think that may be the single most pure, true characteristic of a dedicated Christian. That he is willing or she is willing to confess all known sin. Now notice that Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord God and confessed. He focused on God 
And as he focused on God, he saw the difference between who God is and what he is. In fact, go back for a moment to verse 4 and listen to what he says. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, he reminds himself of who God is. O Lord, the great and awesome God, a covenant-keeping God, a God of kindness. It is against the background of the purity and the majesty and the glory and the holiness and the greatness of God that he sees his own sin. And so true prayer is focused on self-denial. It lays bare the life before God. The superficiality of our prayers is a really frightening thing to me. Sometimes I, I find myself praying to God and having to turn right around and confess that that prayer was a mockery because it was so, so superficial and so shallow. When Abraham tarried before God, he said this, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Genesis 18:27. And there's a sense in which that is the right perspective. We come before God with an overwhelming sense of our unworthiness, our inadequacy, our sinfulness. A prayer I have often prayed in the past, I found years ago written by a Puritan, and this is what it says. O oh God, I know that I often do thy work without thy power, and sin by my dead, heartless, blind service. My lack of inward light, love, delight, my mind, heart, tongue moving without thy help. I see sin in my heart in seeking the commendation of others. This is my vileness, to make men's opinion my rule, whereas I should see what good I have done and give thee all the glory. Consider what sin I have committed and mourn for that. It is my deceit to preach and pray and to stir up other spiritual affections in order to beget commendation, whereas my rule should be daily to consider myself more vile than any man in my own eyes. And then he prayed, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Give me deeper holiness. Plow deep in me, great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide. And he goes on. This is the heart of a man of God. Primary concern to confess his sin. The essence of prayer. A fifth point. While I believe that prayer is centered in the attitude of self-denial, I believe it moves from there to embrace a wider range. And we can see this in Daniel's prayer. True intercession is not only generated by God's word, grounded in God's will, characterized by fervency and focused on self-denial, but it is identified with God's people. Prayer, while it is focused on one's own sin initially, is not morbid and is not self-centered. And here we find Daniel, first of all, confessing his own sin, and then he widens his concern, and he identifies with all of God's people. And this is a marvelous thing. Notice verse 5. What's the first word in verse 5? What do you have in your Bible? We. So he's moved from I 
to we. Notice this. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Verse 6. We, and then he says, our kings, our princes, our fathers, all the people of the land. Verse 7. To us, open shame, to the men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away. Verse 8, to us, our kings, our princes, our fathers, we have sinned. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, nor have we obeyed the teaching set before us. Verse 11, all Israel... And so the curse is poured out on us, for we have sinned. Verse 12, he has spoken against us, against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. Verse 13, we have not sought the favor of our Lord in turning away from our iniquity. Verse 14, calamity is in store brought on us. We did not obey his voice. Verse 15, the end of the verse, we have sinned. We have been wicked. This is what you could call in modern terms solidarity. This is a man of God identifying with his people. And the focus of prayer, I believe, after we have looked at our own life and confessed our own sin, is to carry the needs of others. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, the scripture says, God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. In ceasing to pray for you. And part of it is to pray a prayer of confession on behalf of others. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten on your knees and confessed your own sin to the Lord and then embraced in your prayer the sins of others and said, Lord, we confess, I identify with all of us. It's so easy for us to be spiritually prideful. That's not the case with Daniel. There's something so honest about his spirituality. A proud person is going to go into the temple and pray like the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18. I thank thee that I am not as other men. Uh, other men. I fast and I give tithes and etc., etc., etc. That's the spiritual hypocrite. That's the proud, self-righteous man. But the true man of God, the true woman of God, does not hesitate to be identified and embraced in the sins of the community in the sense that they can say Lord we have sinned you know as a pastor I can go to God and say God I wish you'd shape up these people you've given me you know all these sinful people I'm really getting weary of their sin I wish they could be more like me if you think that's a strange thought I've had that thought from time to time God forgive me for that but the heart of Daniel is to see himself as such a sinner that he is not deserving to be elevated above the sins of his own people. We, he says. He embraces his people. It's like in 1 Chronicles 21:16 when David sinned and all the elders put on sackcloth and cried out to God and confessed sin. It was the sin of one man, but they all embraced it. There was a sense of, of belonging and a sense of compassion and a sense of identification. It's like Galatians 6 says, bear ye one another's what? Burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. 
I was thinking in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it's kind of a beautiful passage in verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. It's a kind of a wonderful thing to think about the fact that I can embrace the sins of others and lift them before God and plead his forgiveness on their behalf. I can embrace the needs of others and lift them before God and, and know He'll answer in response to my prayer. This is, this is praying for the body of Christ, praying for the family of faith. Paul did it so very, very often. Daniel goes very deep with this kind of praying. He even regards the sins of the people, the sins of the priests, the sins of the rulers, the sins of the judges, and the sins of the kings as if they were his own. He senses the responsibility to be an intercessor, not a critic. To identify with his people, not assume himself to be superior to them. In a very real sense, people, we, us, our, is a key to effective intercession on behalf of other people. So Daniel passionately intercedes for his people. Something like the Apostle Paul who could have wished himself accursed for the sake of the salvation of his own people. We have to go beyond ourselves. We start there with confession of sin, but wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us began to pray regarding the sins of all of us? I mean, a holy awe would come over this place if we took not only our own sinfulness, but the sinfulness of all of us to God on a daily basis and asked for God to forgive our sins. You begin not only to pray for your own forgiveness and plead God in behalf of your own sin as you confess it, but you begin to confess the sins of the community of which you are a part and God may work a holy work in all our midst. Let's follow the confession, starting in verse 5, for just a moment. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. Is there anybody in this room right now who can say, I can't identify with that? Anybody? Not me. Now, we may not all be as bad as we could be. We may not even be as bad as some others are, but we all identify with the reality of that. We've all sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from His commandments and His ordinances. We all have to confess what verse 7 says, that righteousness really only belongs to the Lord, but to us belongs open shame. In verse 8, He says it again, open shame belongs to us. While to the Lord belongs compassion and forgiveness, verse 9. Verse 10, again, we haven't obeyed, he says. We've transgressed, verse 11. It just keeps going on like that. Iniquity, transgression, sin. He uses all the terminology. He uses the word sin, which means to miss the mark. He uses the term commit iniquity, which means to distort and act perversely. Then he uses the term to do wickedly, which means to do what you know is wrong. And then the term rebel, which means to defy authority. And then disobey, which means obviously to disobey, just as it says. 
And he says we're all guilty of all of it. You know, uh, can I go back to this thought just in a very basic sense? Show me a person who is trying to walk on the edge of sin and redefine sin as okay, and I'll show you a person who doesn't understand the depths of true spirituality. You show me a person who is probably on the edge of calling things sin that aren't sin, and I'll show you a person who has a deep spirituality. If you find yourself in your life typically excusing things that are sin, but you're redefining them not sin, that's the evidence of a failure to be broken in your own heart and to really understand the sinfulness of sin. For Daniel, it was easy to identify with the sinning people, even though he was the best of them. His definition of sin was so wide and reached so deep into his person that he saw himself as a sinner. How about the Apostle Paul, who said Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Was he the chief sinner? Was he? Of all the sinners in the whole world, was Paul the chief? Not on a human relative scale, but from the standpoint of his heart, all he could see about himself was his own sin. It's like Isaiah when he looks to the vision of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am disintegrating. I'm coming apart. I'm a man with unclean lips. I dwell among people with unclean lips. When he said, Woe, he was pronouncing a curse. He was saying, Damn me. Condemn me to hell. Throw me out of your presence. Destroy me, O God, for I'm an evil man. I have a dirty mouth. And... And somebody would say to Isaiah in chapter 6, Isaiah, you're the best man in the country. You've got to be kidding. You're the prophet of God. You open your mouth, God talks. You're the best of all men. But what he says is, I've seen the Lord. And when you see the Lord for who the Lord is, all you see about yourself is your own sin. The comparison's overwhelming. You show me a person with a shallow sense of sinfulness, and I'll show you a person with a shallow vision of God. You have a profound sense of who God is. You have a profound sense of who you are, and the comparison's overwhelming. And it's easy for you to identify yourself as a sinner. Don't play around on the edges of sin. Understand the sinfulness of sin. And let the Spirit of God probe deeply into your heart and show you those sins that maybe you've been so successful at rationalizing away. Well, true intercession then involves a lot of things. It's generated by God's Word. It's grounded in God's will. It's characterized by fervency. It's realized in self-denial. It embraces others. And it's really all about confession. Let me give you another thought. I believe prayer is dependent on God's character. And I think you see that here. We've already kind of looked at a little of it. But it's dependent on God's character. Look at verse 4. He identifies God as the great and awesome God. Great and awesome God. Great, that's that's His power. Isn't it wonderful when you go to God to know that He has the power to do what you ask Him to do? The power to forgive, the power to strengthen, the power to answer your prayers, the power to meet your needs. That's that's essential to prayer. I mean, I need to know who it is I'm talking to. As J.B. Phillips said many years ago, the problem of many Christians is their God is too small. If you've got an inadequate definition of God, then you've got an inadequate definition of what He's able to do. So you start out with a great God and then an awesome God. The word great speaks of his power. The word awesome speaks of his majesty. He is to be feared. He is to be reverenced. He is to be honored. And then it says, who keeps his covenant. What that means is his word is true. He's, He's true to his faithful promises. He's willing 
to do what he said he would do. Now the first two, his greatness and his awesomeness sort of put him away from us. And even the idea of his promise, his covenant, it may be a bit distant. But the next two in this verse pull him very near to us. Who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Loving kindness is really an Old Testament word for mercy. Its best translation would be steadfast love. He is not just an awesome, powerful, covenant-keeping God who makes these great promises and brings them to pass in his power, but he is a God who is steadfastly loving to his own. And so we go to a God who is powerful enough to do what he says he will do, who is to be reverenced and feared, a God who will keep his word, and we go there knowing that he cares about us with a steadfast love. And not only can he do what he would do, but he wants to do what he would do for those he loves. That adds another dimension. And then it says in verse 7, righteousness belongs to the O Lord. That means everything he does is right. It implies that he must deal with sin, that he cannot ignore it because he's holy. And yet, mercies and Forgiveness, down in verse 9, compassion and forgiveness belong to him as well. So he must do what's right. He must have a holy reaction against sin. Yet he is compassionate. He is merciful. He is forgiving. It's all here. Great and awesome, powerful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, righteous, holy God who is yet loving and merciful and forgiving. That's the kind of God to whom Daniel prays. He understands God must react against sin. He also understands God is a God of compassion. And so as he cries out for the restoration of his people, he's crying out to a God who is able to do it, and he's crying out to a God who loves his people and will do it because of his love and mercy and grace. Now one final thought, and we'll just pull this together. And that is the fact that prayer ultimately consummates in God's glory. I wish we had time to go through every little detail here, but down to verse 16. Prayer ultimately consummates in God's glory. And I want you to notice this. This is such a marvelous truth. Oh Lord, all of this confession and confession of sin and pleading for God to restore his people wraps up in verse 16. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem. Now that's the substance of the prayer. He's really praying for God to end his judgment and open up again grace, forgiveness, mercy, blessing, restoration to his people. This is really the heart of his prayer in verse 16. Everything else is kind of a prologue. Everything else is confession, confession of sin. We deserve it. We deserve it. Now, O oh God, here's my prayer. Please end your, your anger and your wrath. For because of our sins... And the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people, have become a reproach to all those around us. Notice how he accepts responsibility. He says we got exactly what we deserve. It is because of our sins. It is because of the iniquities of our fathers that this has happened and we know it. And then this. So now our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant. 
and to his supplications. Here it comes. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. For whose sake? For his sake. Why do we pray? Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me. I want it for my sake. Like the little boy who said, God bless mommy, God bless daddy. And then at the top of his voice screamed, and God, I want a new bicycle. And his father said, hey, hey, God's not deaf. He says, I know, but grandma's in the next room and she's hard of hearing. <laughs> well, that's sort of a self-serving approach to prayer. But a lot of times our prayers are nothing more than what James says we ask amiss for the purpose of consuming it on our own what? Lusts. But the goal of all prayer is for your sake. Lord, do it for your sake. Do it because this people who have your name attached to them are a reproach to you. You know, it's a... It's an incredible thing to think about, but this school is really a school that bears the name of God. The Master's College, of course, identifying it with the Lord Jesus Christ, but the testimony in the, in the world that this school has is that we name the name of God, right? And if we are not what we ought to be, then who bears the reproach? God does. And so as we pray for God to work in our midst and mold us and shape us into Christ's likeness, we can pray with all honesty, Lord, if we are not what we ought to be, then we are a reproach to your name. So God, please, please bless us. Keep us pure. Make us what you want us to be for your sake, O Lord. Let your face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. In other words, he's saying, restore Jerusalem, bring your people back, raise your temple again for your sake. Notice verse 18. Oh, my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for thine own sake. O my God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by what? Thy name. Hey, it's that identification. I mean, we name the name of Christ. I have prayed for many years for the church God has given me and my prayer is that the church would never be a reproach to the name of God that it would never be a reproach to the name of Christ oh Lord cleanse us of our sin oh Lord forgive us of our iniquity Lord restore us to obedience and blessing make us holy in order that your name might be exalted you understand that that's the issue we're only here for one purpose that's to glorify God the captivity of the Jewish people, the desolation of the sanctuary were interpreted by the nations to mean that Judah's God was either powerless, impotent or indifferent, or that their God was some kind of an illusion and there was no God at all. And so Daniel says, God, please vindicate your name. Put yourself on display. Show yourself powerful. Don't let us be a reproach to you. In John 14, the same basic principle is 
indicated by our Lord in his words to the disciples relative to their own prayers. Listen to this and see if this isn't a wonderful truth that grasped that same idea from Daniel 9. Listen to this. And whatever you ask in my name, John 14, 13, that will I do in order that, this is so wonderful, the Father may be glorified in the Son. You get that? The reason God wants to answer your prayer is to put himself on display. So God, let's see your mercy. God, let's see your forgiveness. God, let's see your restoring power so that the world may know who you are. Who you are. What is the essence then of true prayer? It springs out of the study of the word. It cries to be lined up with the will of God. It is characterized by fervency. It begins with self-denial and an open admission of sin. It embraces the needs of others. It is focused on confession. It is all dependent on the character of God who is both powerful and loving, awesome and merciful. And it consummates in God's glory. And that's the kind of prayer that's answered. The answer is incredible. Look again at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, of course, Gabriel is an angel coming in a human form here, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Here comes the angel with the answer to his prayer. And he gives him this incredible prophecy about the whole history of Israel right down to the coming of Messiah. He answered his prayer far beyond anything Daniel would ever have imagined. And it came while he was continuing in his prayer. Would you notice in verse 21 that he had prayed so long he was extremely weary? Weariness in prayer. I would have to confess to you that we know little about that. Should we know more about that, we might see the power of God beyond anything we could imagine. God answers prayers like this, and I trust that he will answer yours when you're faithful to pray with these things in mind. Let's bow together.